This is Daniel Figella, and you're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. This is another episode in our AI is Here series, and we're focused on AI in the hospital setting. There are plenty of healthcare-related AI applications that don't necessarily touch prickly and highly regulated patient data. We have had companies like LeanTAS on the program in the past who focus more on kind of office operations in healthcare. Today, we are talking, however, about the use of patient data and being able to guide a patient's journey to treatment. We're speaking to Dr. Costas Papagianopoulos. Costas is an honorary senior lecturer at Leeds University. He serves as a thoracic surgeon for Leeds Teaching Hospitals. He is a medical advisor to a number of substantial medical device companies and up until recently was president of the European Society for Thoracic Surgeons. Costas walks us through the use of artificial intelligence for guiding a patient's treatment plan. What does it look like to inform a patient's journey, whether it be their medications, their exercises, or whatever else their treatment plan might involve, with the use of artificial intelligence? Having followed AI in the healthcare space for so long, I, I've seen many, many hurdles in this particular domain, bringing AI into the hospital setting in this particular regard, and was interested in Costas's perspective of where this is hitting the ground running now. Again, this is our AI is here series, so we're talking about applications in place today, not pipe dreams. And so Costas goes into some great detail about how he's seeing AI make its way into the hospital setting. And at the end of this episode, Costas also talks about what folks need to understand about bringing AI into healthcare. What are some of the key barriers to adoption and what are the ways that leaders should think about overcoming them? There's so much to unpack in that latter part of the episode. And there's so many of those barriers that transfer to any industry that I think this should be useful for everybody tuned in. And I'm grateful we were able to unpack all of this with Costas, in addition to getting into the use case. Again, this episode is part of our AI is Here series. This is brought to you by Samba Nova Systems. Samba Nova believes that AI is here, and we've partnered with them to bring you leading experts across industries to highlight where AI is making an impact today. So Samba has been able to support our efforts to reach all kinds of great experts. You guys have heard from Shell in terms of the energy space. You're going to hear from excellent folks in the financial services world. We're now talking to Costas, obviously, in healthcare. So I'm grateful to Samba for being able to support the series. More on them at the end of the episode. Without further ado, we've got a lot to dive into, and this was an awfully fun conversation. So let's fly right in. This is Dr. Costas Papianopoulos here on the AI and Business Podcast. So Costas, welcome to the program. Good evening, I should say, and uh, many thanks for the invitation. I'm really um, humbled and um, very honored to to be part of this um, series of podcasts. Glad to have you with us and glad to have some perspective on healthcare, frankly, Costas, because we've got a lot of great experts from different industries and healthcare is an important space. I wanted to open up things somewhat wide and get your thoughts here. You've had many touch points with AI in your career in healthcare and in the surgical domain. When you think about use case, a use case or trend that in healthcare feels very important and that you're personally excited about right now, what's one that for you really jumps out? I think for me, um, AI was extremely important in, in my in my career and in the way that I have practiced medicine, especially in Leeds and in the UK, from the point of view that I was able to connect with other key opinion leaders 
into the same domain that I was. And in that way, we were able essentially to have a consensus of how we manage patients. The initial steps that we did was to be able to, to create patient pathway management streams in a way that we would provide journeys for patients that they will be standardized, but also that they will be amenable to a regular auditing. That was the first step, and I think that was extremely successful. It took us approximately four to five years to be able to establish that connection, collect all the data that was necessary, and by using AI, we, we were able essentially to streamline treatment. Then we moved into the next into the next step, which was extremely important for us, was to validate the the data that we had, make sure that um, we were we were heading towards the right direction, and and then we moved a step further, which was to essentially look at the disease, not just treating patients, but also being able to start looking at identifying disease earlier on um, in these patients. And the third aspect was that when we finished the treatment with those patients, we started using AI in a way of being able to follow up those patients. And, and that actually facilitated the follow-up of these people because we could do it in, in several instances remotely and with the with AI, we we did not need always the the face to face the face to face um, essentially consultation. That for us proved actually very valid, especially when the COVID pandemic um, hit the globe. Suddenly, the traditional practices, which were face to face consultations, turned into a telephone consultations. But the people that didn't have the experience before that. They had a great disadvantage because they were trying to modify the face-to-face consultation without having any data into their platform, into a telephone consultation. And I think what essentially happened is that they, they were producing very, very low-quality consultations. For us, it was, it, was a different, it was a different kettle of fish. We, we essentially found ourselves that we were prepared for all of this. Yeah, well, and it sounds like there's two use cases, if I'm hearing you correctly, Costa. So I'm going to make sure I'm following you, and then we can kind of break these apart and and really open them up for the the listeners here. One of them is being able to use artificial intelligence to direct sort of patient pathways in terms of treatment. The second is, it sounds like, follow-up with patients. So when you say follow-up, I presume you're talking about setting a next check-in that in this case was virtual. Am I hearing you correctly that those are the two primary use cases, or do we want to clarify? Absolutely, you're spot on. So do you want me to elaborate a little bit further? The first occasion, essentially, we were able to create ourselves standardized patient pathway management journeys. And then we we had, with artificial intelligence, let's say a, a, a guardian angel at all times, that if we were deviating from what it was supposed to be a very good quality standard of, of care, we, we had alerts that would come to all physicians, to all people that they were involved, which means that they, it allows us to, to utilize a corrective pathway. What was most important for me was not only that, what was important for me was the, the fact that I was able to audit results. So it was important for us to be able to control our performance through the standardized pathways. And, and therefore, it became for us a great advantage when we were discussing how we would improve the management of those patients with the senior management of the hospital. And you know yourself that quite often clinical teams 
I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but they can they can work in a, in a little bit of a competitive way yeah, with the sure, management team, sure. isn't it? We look at at certain KPIs ourselves, which has to be very much patient centered, but then the management, quite rightly, sometimes they will be looking at KPIs that they might be very very much finance centered, isn't it? And quite often you need to marry those two things. So in order to have a fairly persuasive argument when we sit on a table. AI is extremely important for us, as it has been proven to be very important for them, because our KPIs then have to match with a KPIs, and, and it means then we can have cost savings, but at the same time, we do not compromise patient care and quality of care that we offer to these people. So this is the first, this is the first point. In other words, you use AI to drive a safe business, but a cost-effective business as well. Got it. So it, it sounds as though once sort of the whole team, hopefully quite a cross-functional team, because you certainly couldn't have just execs or you know any one group doing this, w- would come up with what we're going to optimize for. In other words, hey, here's the here's the place with cost-effectiveness. Here's the place with sort of safety. Here's here's all the things that we want to sort of optimize for. Here's how that's going to be scored and measured. And what you're getting at is if both teams can look at that and say, this is the points we want to put on the board, then it's easier to gain alignment and we can reduce some of that natural friction between these, you know, leadership groups. Correct. And and additionally, which is a win-win situation, it offers you the opportunity to to see not only the quality of care you provide to those patients, but to see whether you will be able to cycle more patients through the same capacity that you do have. So you you become essentially not only cost-effective, but you become even more productive. And let me give you another example. We have a TMS system, as we call it in hospital, which is which is the theater management software, where we throw in millions and millions of data in every day about the turnaround times, the waiting times, the um, time that the journey takes from the pre-admission clinic into coming into theater, if there is any any time waste. And then we have a system that, that thinks on itself. It bring you a statistical analysis of how well you have performed. So at the end of the day, it is not just about performing um, an operation or doing a list, but it's about how effective and productive you are in performing that list, but equally how safe you are. You, you start you start looking through that system on all different details, AM versus PM, beginning of the week versus end of the week, whether your mobility and your mortality is increasing. And then you start thinking, wait a minute, if I have if I have changes or differences between AM and PM or beginning or the end of the week, there must be a reason for that, isn't it? So the system allows you to drive into conclusions and being able to do corrections on your own practice and performance in a much in a much easier and safer way. Yeah, well and, and there's actually there's a lot of challenges to making this work in the real world. And I'm I'm interested here in what the deployment of this looked like. You had talked before about sort of the patient pathway. One of the challenges we've seen in that space is that a lot of the data we're taking in doesn't exactly correlate with base reality. In other words, if I am on, if I am Amazon and I'm tracking somebody's click behavior and purchase behavior, I'm looking at definite activities, right? Somebody definitely clicked on this item. Somebody definitely swiped their credit card. Somebody definitely, you know, I'm, I'm looking at relatively concrete things. In in the health space, we're asking the patient often a question, you know, did you take your medication, right? Did you do your physical therapy? Did you eat vegetables this week or what have you? You know, did, did you do these specific things when you showed up at this check-in? And it feels like that 
patient report element has, has in many cases, in, in this kind of pathway determining healthcare use case, prevented it from becoming real because we weren't able to drink in things that, that frankly, we could trust, Costas. But it sounds as though you guys were able to actually guide the journey. How did you work with that? Because there are a lot of hurdles to making that real. What, what we have done is through the University of Leeds, we've done, we've done a lot of research on what would have been the best way of collecting the data f- from people in, in an objective way. So we, we take all the bias that you just talked to yourself now, all, all the human errors that, that can potentially happen. And by, by doing the research and doing a statistical analysis, we were able essentially to guide people into giving us the, the answers that we wanted. And it is not about answers. It is answers that they translate into data. For example, in the breast services, we have we have done we have done a research, and we have seen that when the people were able to fill in an online questionnaire, which we had simplified that for them, regardless of the socioeconomic level or the the educational level that these people were, we were able actually to create a system where the or the platform in itself would have told us that the episode of a follow-up is completed and we are on the green, which means this patient can be seen in six months' time, or it would throw an alert and say, well, this is, this is, this is outside what we were expecting to be, and then we would generate a letter or a phone call and say, we would like to see you face-to-face just to make sure that everything is okay with you. So, yes. Putting these questions that you are required into humans in order to be able to give you the data that you wish to have, especially in the healthcare science, it is not that easy. Then you have to remember, quite often, we can extrapolate from people the answers that we want to if we ask them the correct questions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it, to be frank, even with the ideal questions, if we're getting responses from humans where maybe there's some social pressure to say, yes, I did take my medication, you know, like, sure, doc, it, it does feel like there's, you know, there's risk in every AI application, but that seems like something that it's tough to avoid. But it sounds like you were able to structure the process enough so that those guiding recommendations could still be productive. I'm sure they weren't perfect. No data is. But it sounds as though you were able to guide the intake process well enough so that the recommendations became something that actually could support workflow. So this is just interesting for me because we've definitely seen challenges here, but it, it sounds like you guys made some great headway. Yeah, I'll, I'll, t- I'll give you another example, Dan, how we, we, um, we, we tried actually to take the, the, the personal, as you call yourself, bias on, on yes. any answers that the people might have wanted to give us. There are devices now out there that they are employed in the market, which they require um, a little bit of Wi-Fi connection and a Bluetooth connection, in which case, in the past, you would have asked somebody to give you his heart rate and measure his blood pressure on his own, and obviously he could give you any numbers he wished to or she wished to, isn't it? If I'm right of what you, you were implying earlier yes, on in our yes, conversation. Yes. But nowadays, you give, them, you give them a SATS probe, a saturation probe to take home, which is connected with Bluetooth, and you give, him, you give him a little patch which he puts on, which can measure his blood pressure and his heart rate. Well, in that situation, the patient, I'm afraid, he cannot give you inappropriate information or incorrect information because you're collecting it yourself remotely, and all this data is essentially the correct data that goes into the platform. And you, you can expand as much as you want to on this, isn't it? You can create essentially a long list of, of these patients that you have in your own practice in which you can just have a simple application now on your, on your phone and you can look at that. And then equally, when, when something goes 
outside what it is expected to be the range of, of normal or physiological values, you get an instant alert onto your mobile phone and then essentially you can activate then a, a follow-up or a simple phone call to make sure that everything is fine with that patient or whether he needs to come back to hospital and have a, a, further, a further assessment. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So certainly you're, you're dropping down the, the risk level when you give somebody the device versus ask them a number. That said, the, the interesting corollary here in the insurance space is a lot of these insurance companies will say, hey, put this device in your car and you know we'll base your auto insurance based on the device. And then they'll just put it in their grandma's car you know, and she might drive three miles uh, every six months or something, and, and they'll get a better price. But but I think in, in the health space, it's obviously harder to do that. But clearly, you're chopping down the ability for humans to make things up by actually giving them devices that then can give you better data. If I'm hearing you correctly, Costas, and I'm, I'm just going to clarify the use case, and then we'll get a little bit into some of your adoption lessons learned, because this stuff is complicated. Most healthcare folks have not gotten this far. Just to clarify for the audience, if I'm hearing you right, by taking in the right data at the right points in the patient's journey, is it correct to say that the AI was kind of kicking off when there were divergences in terms of signals from the patient or activities of the patient or maybe the treatment path of the patient? And then would that show up on some kind of a dashboard for a physician like yourself to say, hey, these are things that seem different and you may want to address these. These seem like people that might be steering away from the guided path is that is that where the AI came in, Costas, or where did it actually? Correct. Okay, got it, got it. Correct. This is exactly this is exactly what we did. We have, for example, now devices that when we operate people in their chest, we con- we connect obviously a tube that we put in the chest to a device. And one of the things to give you a very simplified example was that sometimes people might have leaks from their lungs. In the past, you would you would use the visual, which was the bubbles. Nowadays, we have essentially a, a device, which is a one and a half kilogram tiny laptop, which is essentially connected to the patient's to the patient's chest, and it gives us a graph. It it churns data every every millisecond, and then it gives us a final graph of the air leak that we do have. These devices can be given to patients at home. They have to be connected, obviously, on those ones, and they know that. Because if they disconnect themselves, they will be in trouble. But instead of keeping them in hospital, you send them home, you, you get those readings downloaded onto a system automatically, and then you can see on that graph with AI how the patient is doing, but not only that, it can give you a prediction of when this treatment will finish. And I think this is what every one of us wants in the healthcare system, isn't it? You, you need to be able to predict of, of how quickly you're going to be able to complete the treatment on that patient safely because you're going you're gonna to bring in another patient in his, in his space. So you become much more productive. But equally, you can, give, you can give answers on those that they're deviating from the expected treatment and you can sometimes prevent accidents which translate into morbidity and complications. Yeah, and I imagine, tell me if I'm wrong here, Kostas, but some of those divergences, you know, that that could lead to danger are probably pretty simple in terms of if-then rules, right? Like, if blood pressure above X, kick off a notification. If it's clear they haven't taken their medication, boom. But, But maybe it's the more nuanced patterns or cadences of their behavior and data signals where the AI can actually kind of flag things that could be more risky. Is that a correct assumption? Exactly. In the past, in the past, we were able simply to say yes or no in certain things, isn't it? Nowadays, though, we have trends. 
data that they are collected, they give you they give you trends, and those those trends essentially they do translate at the end of the day into stories. It is imagine yourself that in the past you had a snapshot, isn't it? From that snapshot, you would you would know whether the weather is clear or not by just looking at the sky. But yep. now, if yep. you do have AI, it means that you can have a trend. It means you will know what is going to happen in the next two or three days. It's because you have the knowledge. You don't have a snapshot anymore. You have a video. You have a series of data that they're connecting with each other and they give you a story. Yeah. So a, a much different level of perspective versus just the hey, is it red or green today? It's very, very different than being able to see those trend lines and understand that. So we can get a little bit into kind of lessons learned in adopting these technologies. I can tell you right now, Costas, in fields that are, I think healthcare is a fantastic field with outlandishly talented people, but all things considered, it's not necessarily the industry with the most rife, you know, proliferation of data science per se, even in spaces that maybe have more of that talent, they really struggle to get things into deployment cost us to, to actually be able to get professionals, you know, very talented people like surgeons to use these technologies. Adoption is hard. It's very, very tough to, to get the right buy-in and to, to learn all these hard lessons with data. What were some of the most important lessons you learned in actually bringing some of these AI applications to life in terms of what made them actually work in the field? I will give you a personal view, first of all, if I'm allowed to, why in the healthcare sciences things are much slower than what they are in the rest in the rest of the world surrounding us. Yes, go for it. Go for there are two issues here, and it is not that much the financial issues. The first thing is the risk associated with collecting data. It is the legalization. It is the cumbersome regulatory processes that many, many governments and many countries around the world, they do have about processing data and how they can actually jointly utilize data for applications as such. So AI for some people is is a very risky business. And when it comes to healthcare, and because healthcare has been legalized to a large extent, that's why people are becoming more and more risk averse, and it is very difficult to establish AI and bring it into the healthcare sciences. The second problem is healthcare sciences, medicine was traditionally applied between persons, isn't it? You have the doctor on the one side and the patient on the other side. And some people feel threatened that AI is going to take the the personal touch away. It's going to take away the human connection, the connection between doctor and patient. What the people need to understand is that AI is actually going to enhance the relationship between the doctor and the patient. It will give them a much safer relationship and this is the this is the direction that we need to work towards establishing ai in in the vast majority of healthcare institutions around the world yeah i mean i i think there is definitely that fear i mean let me know if these resonate with you as well here costas this is just from you know half a million interviews in this space and and getting to to talk to a lot of smart people another factor here is that There's maybe the patient fear of, oh, no, you know, my doctor will be replaced by a robot. I think there's also the physician fear of, hey, I spent $100,000 to get this degree and uh, I've still got to pay this thing off. And by golly, no machine will ever be smarter than me. Like I was told that being a doctor was the highest status thing you could ever be. There's a little bit of like, we've got to work around those prickly ego issues a little bit, just like we do in every industry, but I think in, in healthcare the same. The other thing that we often hear, and maybe you've you know got certainly much more up-close perspective on this, is that in healthcare, the stakeholder balance is much more 
complex. In other words, in a bank, there might be, you know, you buy this AI application, you use it here, it reduces fraud here, it kind of makes sense. In healthcare, the CEO of the bank or the CFO might invest in it, but the doctors and the nursing assistants actually have to use it and it changes their workflow. And the patient is the one that actually gets the benefit. So it's sort of, wait, wait, who, who gets the benefit? Who's paying? Whose life is changing? Uh, and to align that many connected dots, that one extra connected dot in this case of, of patient, in addition to kind of the practitioners and, and, and executive leadership, it also just feels like it, it leaves a lot of things hung up because getting that many people aligned is really challenging. Has that been your experience as well or, or has it been something different uh, up close and personal? No, it is. It, it is. it is indeed. I mean, I've, I've been in this business now for 25 years and when I came to Leeds in 2001, within three years, I wanted to introduce the COW that the Americans call it, Computers on Wheels, where we were not connected onto the wall, but we were, we were entirely connected to a cloud and we were able to get data on patients when we were doing a ward round, something, that, something that's cuffs your hands. And I am telling you, the amount of resistance that I had from the <laughs> hospital to do oh, this, man. because somebody would be sitting in the pavement with a laptop and he will be hacking on our data, which is entirely ridiculous, I'm sorry, to me. Yes. Um, it, was, it was incredible. And it took a lot of time to persuade the people that, look, you don't have to be connected with a cable and collect data to be, to be able to be safe. You can do it in, in different ways. But unfortunately, in the healthcare sciences, we have a little bit of a paradox. Although we do have scientists that they have spent half of their life studying, and the same person that says to you that I want to practice evidence-based medicine, which means, in other words, that you collect data, you analyze it, you provide the evidence, and with that evidence, you practice, isn't it? This is all AI. On the other hand, the same person says, oh, I'm sorry, I don't want to be replaced with an application because I don't trust it because it will not be able to make the same executive decisions that I can make myself because the human brain is always better. And I think this this is a great paradox. I am very glad that the new generation does not think the same way that my generation actually was thinking. We have people that they are better and they are much more technology savvy and they do believe in data because they use them on, on a daily on a daily basis by the time they wake up and they put the, the phone the iphone in their pocket this is exactly what they do they use ai for everything isn't it yes yes it's, it's so much more integrated into daily life so you think that the next generation will actually kind of overcome some of those <laughs> natural resistances to the technology itself Yes, it is. It is already happening. If we look, for example, on the NHS and UK, there are five pilot cities. Leeds is one of them where where money has been invested from the um, NHS England because essentially NHS England, what it wants by 2030, they want to have AI in full partnership with the everyday practice. And and it is happening. That is good news. And then I'm, I'm hoping, I think, I've talked to folks in America that are also optimistic. I've talked to others who are very frustrated with the pace, but it's great to see that you're seeing some traction on your side. And I know we still have a bit more time to talk about some of the things that you learned up close and personally. You've you've highlighted some of the important reasons that adoption can be slower in healthcare, but also you've talked about the factors that are leading us more towards adoption, which I think is important to bear in mind. When it's come to what you've learned using AI, you know, AI to guide a patient's pathway in terms of treatment. AI to be able to maybe recommend when to reach out and book a next appointment. What did you learn from that, I guess, those use cases in the real world that you feel like might be useful for other healthcare folks who might adopt this technology moving forward? The first thing that I have to tell people, 
is that AI is safe in the healthcare sciences. It took me a little bit of time to believe myself in it, but then it became an integral part of my everyday practice. I cannot live without it anymore. I, I need it every day because, because it essentially uncuffs my hands. It allows me to be a global scientist. I don't have to be in a specific place to be able to treat people. I don't, be able, I don't have to be in a specific place to connect with people. I don't have to be in a specific place to safely watch people who are my patients. I can do it anywhere I want to, and, and I think this is the, the, this is the importance. We will move a step further in the future. We have been traditionally, as I said in the beginning of the interview, treating humans for diseases that they do develop because they come in when they have signs and symptoms, isn't it? What AI is going to assist us is prevent people eventually from developing those diseases. And we need to embrace it because we will not be able ourselves as humans to prevent diseases. We, we need essentially data collection and we need platforms in hospitals and in the primary healthcare setting that they will be able to prevent, to prevent diseases or even recognize diseases at a very, very early phase. And I will give you another example. In, in the breast services now in Leeds, again, we, we have actually collaborated with a Canadian um, company where we will be putting into a huge silo of data images from, from women that they might be at high risk in developing breast, breast cancer. And then we will have automatic reports from mammograms that we're going to be doing in, this, in these ladies. And they will not even need a radiologist to pick up a problem. And in all honesty, AI in some situations, because it utilizes an algorithm, will always pick up the problem while sometimes a human might actually not see it yeah. and, and, and have a human error. Yes. So it sounds like for you that there are places where on the diagnostic side, it is pretty much inevitable that if we want the best performance in terms of results for the patient, adoption Absolutely. of AI is the way. Yeah. I, I, you know, not as many physicians will say that. I think obviously the vendors are always going to say that, but certainly there is a tremendous amount of promise there. And, and this will take us to our last little final question here, Costas. I'll be brief, but I do want to get your take here. Part of this AI is here series. We're talking to a lot of very smart folks in Europe. You're obviously in the United Kingdom as we speak today. When you look around at other folks in the EU who are adopting cutting-edge technology, you've been involved in some Europe-wide groups around thoracic surgery uh, as sort of president of that organization, and, and talk to others who are probably adopting these technologies. Maybe some of them have views where they're a little scared. Maybe some are kind of aggressive to want to adopt. When you look at healthcare leaders in Europe and kind of their sentiments around AI, what are you seeing there, and what do you think more of them need to know? If I had to draw, if I have to put down the, a map of Europe and fly a drone, you, you, you'll see, you'll see that there are two things that they will, in some situations, do not allow AI to fly off very quickly. The one is traditionalism and the other one is conservatism. It doesn't have to deal with finances. It's, it's just getting over the old dinosaurs. And I'm afraid, Dan, dinosaurs don't boogie. <laughs> this no, is, this is the biggest problem, isn't it? And this is, this is what we see. There are cultures, for example, within North, Northwestern Europe that they will embrace AI. They have already embraced AI and, and they will essentially support it. But there will be, if you, if you start moving um, towards the, the southern part and the eastern part of Europe, I'm afraid AI has not, has not taken on 
as you would have expected it. Mm. Now, one way forward would have been to utilize European Union legislation to be able to bring the people together. But I'm afraid this is taking a little bit of a, a political flavor, and I don't want to comment any any further on that aspect, <laughs> yeah. because because I might upset <laughs> some of the people that they might be listening those those podcasts. The only way that I can see that myself which is the, the positive aspect, is that the key opinion leaders and the institutions, i.e. the European Society of Thoracic Surgery, the European Association of Cardiothoracic Surgery, the European Association of Cardiology, or the European Association of Radiology, they have scientists that are coming from all parts and corners of Europe, and they will be most probably the driving force of AI. Now, whether these people will be able, these people will be able to persuade the next level, which will be essentially the policyholders at at government level, this is a very big question. But this is the this is the only way that we we will have to change the attitude towards utilizing AI and embracing AI in healthcare sciences in Europe. Yeah, well, that, that, uh, a, a, an excellent summary from somebody with uh, boots on the ground experience. I feel as though you and I might resonate. Um, in many, many ways about some of uh, Europe's take on on leaning into regulation when it comes to artificial intelligence. But to your point, we'll have to save that for another conversation. Costas, I know that's all we have for time for today, but it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Sunny. It's been, again, a pleasure and honor to be part of this uh, podcast. I'm sure that um, those are useful to thousands of people I'm out there. And this is a very good way, actually, of, of connecting in between ourselves and, and, and driving AI in the future in, in all domains, actually, on this planet. That's, that's what we're hoping for, brother. So thanks again for being with us. Thank you very much, Stan. It was a pleasure speaking to you tonight. And that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. A big thank you to Costas for being able to be with us. And thank you to you, our listener, for being here all the way through to the end of this episode. I hope you've gotten a lot out of these AI is Here episodes. Again, AI is Here is brought to you by Samba Nova. You can learn more about them at sambanova.com slash AI dash is dash here. Or you can just Google Samba Nova AI is Here and you'll be able to find the site there as well. Again, they've been able to support us and give us a pretty wide berth to find the experts we think are at the cutting edge and learn more about where AI is impacting industries today. We've got more AI is Here episodes in future Wednesdays, so stay tuned on Wednesdays for more of these Where is AI Hitting the Ground Running oriented episodes. And be sure to stay tuned for Tuesdays as we continue to cover AI use cases and trends, as always, every single darn Tuesday here on the AI and Business Podcast. So I'll wrap things up from here. I look forward to catching you in the next episode here on the AI and Business Podcast.